If you would, take out your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to the Gospel of John. Begin in chapter 11, verse 55. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always will have with you, but you do not always have me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another Lord's Day where we can come together as your people and gather to sing your praises, to hear from your word, and to set our affections upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, as we dig into this passage and see this remarkable story, Father, I pray that our affections would indeed be turned to the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would help us to see that he is more worthy of anything that this world has to offer that there is nothing that we have that we should withhold from him. So, Father, I pray that you would do your faithful work as the word goes forth to be working in the hearts of your people to help us to pursue Christ all the more vigorously in our lives. And for those who don't know you, Lord, I pray that they would be in a place where they must choose this day whether or not they will serve Christ or this world. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for this word. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be back with you again. As we look over the course of history, it's easy to see how every culture and society has its own particular blind spots. Every culture has certain culturally acceptable sins that they are prone to. And we often look back in history and marvel at the things that were normative for different peoples in different times. And sometimes we can even look to some of our own Christian heroes from our vantage point and and be appalled at the things they participated in. A couple of examples Two of my favorite figures from church history, Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, 
participated in owning slaves. Or our beloved reformer, John Calvin, participated in the execution of a heretic. Now, we can, we can get on our high horse from our cultural vantage point and condemn those men without seeking to understand the culture in which they lived and, and how they participated in those things. But to do so would be a mistake because it's far more complex than we often give it credit. Nevertheless, their participation was made possible by certain cultural blind spots. Well, when we think about our own culture and how we will be remembered, I'm sure there are many blind spots to which we are not even aware of. But there is one, one blind spot that I think is one of the biggest that we are actually aware of, but I don't think we truly feel just how spiritually devastating it really is. And that is the sin of consumerism. No society in the history of the world has had to deal with the onslaught and normalization of consumerism like ours has. Our society and economy is built upon it. Everywhere, at all times, we are inundated with being told that we need more, we need better, we need bigger. And when we don't have the money for it, but we really want it, we can simply take out a loan in less than a second with a swipe of a credit card. Consumer debt in our country is now approaching $18 trillion, a number that we actually cannot comprehend, quite literally, a number that societies in the past didn't even have a word for. But that is where we are. And for that reason and many more, I think the sin that took Judas to the grave and sent Jesus to his is a bigger threat to us than it has ever been in the history of the world, which is the love of money, the love of this world. Even though it has always been there, it has always been a massive temptation, to be sure, as we will see as we look at this today, it is, it is one of the most warned about sins in all of Scripture, but our culture seeks to normalize it and seeks to numb us to it. And for that reason, it's often easy to miss how much it, it beckons our affections away from Christ. We are prone to forget that Christ said, you cannot serve God and money. Well, today we're going to see a vivid picture of just how blinding this sin really is. And today we're going to see a contrast between two people as their hearts and their affections, the affections of their hearts, are put on display before Christ. And really, what we are seeing here in this contrast is not limited to Mary and Judas, but it is indicative of the only two ways of every human heart. It is indicative of the contrast John has been making throughout this book, which is that of light and darkness. And as we work through this, I would challenge you to be examining your own heart. What is it that truly has your heart? Is it Christ? Or is it the things of this world? 
And don't be too quick to answer that question. Pray this passage would cause us all to think through this with, with soberness, with regard to our own lives. Now, before we get to the, the, the big event, the moment of this anointing, as we jump in, let's first look at the setting that is established by John. Look, look back at verse 55 of chapter 11 with me. It says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. We have now come to the final Passover in this book. And as John has done all throughout this writing, he, he continues to use the Jewish feasts as markers of time in the progression of the narrative. And this last Passover is the main point. Everything in this book has been building towards this. And further, you may have noticed that we're actually now slowing way down. John has written this in such a way that throughout the book, the, the time elements get more and more zoomed in as we get closer to Jesus' passion. It started in, in eternity past in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then after the prologue, in chapters 1 through 6, that took place over the course of several years. But then chapters 7 through 11, that took place over the course of several months. And now, chapters 12 through 21 are going to take place over the course of just a few days. And basically, we're going to spend the next year or so of Sundays just digging into things that took place during the Passion Week in the days that followed after the resurrection. And even then, this is just from, from John's perspective, so much happened in that one week that it's really hard to, to wrap our minds around it all. But that most significant week in human history is finally at hand in this book, the arrival of the last Passover. And as it approaches, John says, many of the Jews went up to Jerusalem to purify themselves. Now, this was to keep God's statutes found in Numbers chapter 9, that if anybody was, to, was found to be ceremonially unclean from the touching of a, a dead body or anything of the like, they were to purify themselves before they participated in the Passover. So many would go up a week early, the week prior, to go through purification rites. Now, obviously, Jesus was not in need of purification, so He did not go up until later. But the environment and the buzz that was already astir in anticipation of His coming is very reminiscent of what we've seen earlier in this book. Look at, look at verse 56. It says, They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That He will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where He was, He should let them know so that they might arrest Him. This reminds you of what was going on back in chapter 7 at the, the Feast of Tabernacles. But the intensity has been turned up quite a few notches. And the reason for that is everything that's happened since then, leading up to the plot of the Sanhedrin. As we looked at last time we were together, the, the chief priests and the Pharisees, which is just another way to speak of the Sanhedrin, had devised their final plot to put Jesus to death. 
And they had convened to lay out how they were going to carry this out. And as a result of that meeting, they had put out public orders to all of Jerusalem that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they were to turn him in. Kind of reminds me of the, the rat on your neighbor orders that we went through during the COVID-19 debacle. Except here, it's all focused in on, on one person. Jesus has been now deemed a, a criminal and put at the top of the most wanted list. And, and everyone knew it. Everyone was aware. You, you need to realize, historically speaking, this whole ordeal had, had captured the, the attention of this nation. Much like for us, when, when COVID hit the scene and it was all everyone was focused on, it was all the, the, the news could talk about, it was the center of conversation, it was the focus of our governing leaders, the same thing here for the Jewish people. But the attention is not on a pandemic, it's on a person. And everyone has an opinion on who he is. And the people are all wondering, what's, what's going to happen? Is he, is he even going to show up? Or is he going to stay away and avoid this danger? Well, the answer comes in the very next verse. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12, and notice John's language. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Notice John's usage of the word, therefore, connecting back to what was just previously stated. The Pharisees had given orders that he be arrested, therefore Jesus came to Bethany, which is in Judea, just two miles outside of Jerusalem, which is actually where he's heading. Bethany was just a stop-off. The point being, this time is different. All through this book, over and over, we have seen Jesus withdraw. He, would, he withdrew to the wilderness, or he, he left the temple, or he evaded arrest because his hour had not yet come. When things were heating up, Jesus withdrew. But this time, he's intentionally moving toward it. His hour has now come. He is not avoiding it, but on the contrary, he's intentionally moving toward death. He is heading to Jer Jerusalem, where he is violently sought after. He knows of the plot. He knows of the orders given to the people. And the time has now come for him to walk right into it. But on the way, he stops in Bethany, where his old friend Lazarus was alive and well. And it says, upon that arrival, they gave a dinner for him to honor Christ. They gave a, a dinner to honor Christ in response to what he had done for this family in the previous chapter. True to form, Martha is busy serving everyone, while Lazarus is reclining with Jesus. What a marvelous scene this is. The, the man who was rotting in the tomb for four days is now reclining with the Lord of glory and sharing a meal with the man who brought him back from the dead. Can you imagine? I would have loved to have just heard that conversation. But while they are celebrating, 
celebrating Jesus and celebrating Lazarus' return to life, Jesus' rapidly approaching death is looming heavy. At this point, as John says, we are now only six days away from the final Passover, six days away from the rigged trial, six days away from the merciless beatings and mockery that he would undergo, six days away from being hung on a Roman cross, six days away from the moment that Jesus would become the Passover lamb to be slain in such a bloody fashion. The countdown to his death is on, and he knows it. So that is the setting in which all of this takes place. And it's in the midst of this setting that we see the contrast of these two hearts as they are exposed in Mary's actions and in Judas's words. But it starts with Mary. Look at verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, this story may sound familiar to you from the reading of the other Gospels. There are actually four accounts of a woman anointing Jesus, one in each Gospel. And the stories in Matthew and Mark are very clearly the same instance. There's some differences in the choice of details that they include, but they are without question the same story. The story in Luke was a different instance altogether. Even though that woman also used her hair, that was a different woman at a different time in a different place. It actually happened in Galilee earlier on in Jesus' ministry. So we need to be careful not to conflate those stories. But here you have, you have Mary the sister of Lazarus, coming into this dinner and interrupting with an act that would have been startling, to say the least. And this act has actually become what she is known for and remembered for. In fact, if you would flip back just a page to the beginning of chapter 11, you may remember that when John introduced Mary for the first time in the book, even though this had not happened yet in the narrative, he introduced her in verse 2 of chapter 11 by saying this, It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Mary was absolutely known and remembered for this, and, and she still is. John clearly anticipated that his readers had already heard something about this. And the truth is, this is all in keeping with what, what Jesus said in the other Gospels. In, in the parallel passages in Matthew and Mark, this scene ends with Jesus saying, Truly I say to you, wherever this Gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Which is exactly what's happening today. So this is no small thing. This was a, a symbolic act that carried some providential and perhaps even prophetic meaning to it, as we will see. But she comes into the middle of this feast with an alabaster jar filled with ointment. It was, it was a type of perfume, an, an aromatic oil made from pure nard. 
And when John says pure, that word is, is genuine. The idea is this is the, this is the real deal. This wasn't some cheap imitation perfume that you could get from the local market. This was genuine and not diluted. It was pure. Nard is a plant also known as spikenard. Some of you may have heard of it. But it, it grew only in the Himalayan mountains of northern India. So it was really hard to get. The oil was made from the root of the plant, and it had a strong and sweet aroma to it. It was highly valued and highly sought after and not at all easy to come by. And this is why John adds the descriptor that it was expensive. Now, with these oils, a little bit goes a long way. You did not need to use much. That's why modern-day essential oils and that whole craze, they're typically sold in in little half-ounce jars, like 10 or 15 milliliters which will actually last for a long time. Well, Mary had a pound. Twelve ounces is what it was. So you can, you can think of a soda can. Twelve ounces of pure nard from the Himalayan mountains. And, and Judas, in his objection, lets us know how much it cost. It cost 300 denarii. At least that's how much you could sell it for. And for, for perspective, a denarius was a common day's wage for the typical working laborer during that time. So 300 denarii was a full year's wage. When you count the Sabbath and the holy days that they didn't work, this was probably more than a year's wage. To bring that into our times, this would be the equivalent of around $50,000 in value. It's pretty significant. That's why John says this was expensive and pure. He wants us to feel the weight of her actions. Now, some have asked, well, how did Mary have such a large amount of this rare ointment? Some think it was because this family was extremely wealthy, which may well be the case. But others think this actually could have been a family heirloom passed down. We don't know. But we know this, she had it. And she had been keeping it for this moment. And she does not take a little bit of this oil, but rather in, in what could be viewed as a reckless act She takes the entire thing and pours out $50,000 worth of oil, anointing Jesus' feet. Not only his feet, also his body and his head. We know that from the other accounts that tell us that she anointed his head, and then Jesus even says in Mark that she anointed my body. No contradiction there. It's just different emphasis, different focus. This This was too much to actually just be poured out on the feet or just on the head. It was poured out upon the Savior. And standing there watching this unfold is John the Apostle, his eyewitness, the writer. And as he recalls this event, he says that the the house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. Mary's act had not only been seen, It had been experienced by everyone who was there. The aroma was so potent that it filled the room, overshadowing the smell of the food and the people and everything else. And John could probably smell it just in his memory of this as he's he's recalling and writing this event. But this anointing was meant to mark him off. 
The act of anointing in the ancient world was meant to set someone apart for their particular office or role as as a king or a ruler or a prophet or a, a priest. And it was meant to lavish praise and honor upon them. Mary was here expressing the fullness of her faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. She now knew him to be the king of kings. And John very intentionally brings this story in, the moment of this anointing in, right before the triumphal entry coming in verse 12. This was a kingly anointing before the king rode into Jerusalem. But John, for his purposes, did not focus on on the head, as Matthew and Mark do, but on the fact that she anointed his feet. And she, she let down her hair, which is a very taboo thing to do in the first century. But she did so to use her own hair instead of a towel to wipe the feet of Christ, to wipe the oil on his feet, an act reserved for a slave. She's simply displaying her humility before him and the worth that she attributed to him. See, Mary got it. Even more than the disciples at this moment, for in the very next chapter, they're going to have to be taught by Christ to wash one another's feet, to serve one another in a sacrificial way. But Mary got it. Here, Mary's sacrifice was almost assuredly was her most prized possession in this world, and then she uses even her own body, her own hair, in order to properly honor the Lord. She got it. This is the type of worship that, that He is due. This is the type of worship that we see in Revelation chapter 5, ascribing all honor, all glory, and all praise to Him forever. That is right, and that's what Mary's doing. You see, I, I really believe that, that everything that Mary had passed through had gotten her to this point. Now, from the first time we ever met Mary, back in Luke chapter 10, when she's sitting at the feet of Jesus, Mary had always had an affection and a devotion to Christ. But this, this was a remarkable act of faith and worship. And I believe much of what she went through in the midst of losing her brother, grieving his death and his loss, not knowing where Christ was through it all, And learning to trust Christ in the midst of hardship had brought her to an even different place in her faith. As Jesus told her and Martha right before he raised Lazarus from the dead, if you believe, you will see the glory of God. And the glory of God was not the miracle itself. It was the revelation of who Christ is. Many saw the same miracle and did not believe. They did not see the glory of God, but Mary did. The greatest thing she received that day was not the return of her brother, but a full understanding of who Jesus Christ is. And in seeing it, she valued him more than anything in this world. And that's what's on display here with her. The truth is, For the believer, that is often, if not always, what God is doing through the trials and losses that we walk through in this life, helping us to see that this 
temporary and passing world is, is not worth it. Only Christ is. As I look back on my own life and faith, and I think about the times where my faith has grown the most, it was, it was not on the mountaintops. It was not in the highs. I mean, God can still use those moments, and He most certainly does, but when I look back at the times when I was, when I was driven to my knees in, in dark times or hard times, it is then in those kinds of times where you learn what really matters, what is really worthy, what is really lasting. And it's not this world. It's Christ. And Mary got it in a profound way. But the unbeliever, no matter how much time they spend around Christ, no matter how much they hear of Him or even see from Him, no matter how many glorious truths pass through their ears or even before their eyes, they will always value this world more than Christ. And that is nowhere more clearly seen than here in Judas's words which stand in stark contrast to Mary's actions. Look at verses 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having the charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, it's interesting. I ran a search of Judas' name in the Gospel of John, and I discovered that almost every time that John mentions Judas, he inserts that he is the one who betrayed Christ. The only exception is actually John chapter 13 when he's actually in the act of betraying Christ, because then it's, it's obvious. It seems that, that John cannot remember Judas, or even speak of Judas without remembering what he did. And he doesn't want us to lose sight of it either. But you have to realize that at the time when this took place, no one thought it was Judas. No one suspected Judas. That will become very clear later on. They all viewed him as just another fellow disciple, which he was. As John says right here, when he says Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, Judas was a disciple of Jesus Christ. We need to remember that. And he considered himself to be one too. He did not join up with Jesus all along as some kind of spy intending to betray him at the right moment. Not at all. But Judas' love for this world consumed him. He was a slave to it. Which is why when he observes this beautiful act of worship, he does not see it as that, but merely a waste of value. And so he objects. And he objects in the most pious way he, he could think of. Why was this not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, to be fair, Judas was actually not the only one who thought this way when they saw this. There were others there who agreed with him. Matthew even clarifies that some of the other disciples were indignant 
when they saw what Mary did. What a waste. You, you, just, you just poured out a year's wage in 30 seconds. Do, do you realize what we could have done with that? All the people we could have helped? Many who were in the room thought that way. And they didn't appreciate what she did. And we have to wonder how we would have responded if we were there. I mean, think about this. If you watched a woman who was likely known to be a bit more emotional and impulsive than her steady, hardworking sister, walk in and pour out $50,000 in value in a second in an act of devotion, what would you think? How would you respond? Now, we, we cheer her on in hindsight, but I wonder if we would have had similar thoughts. But despite many feeling indignant about her action, John lets us know that it was, it was Judas who made the objection. And it was Judas alone who had ulterior motives. The others who agreed with him were likely taking his words at face value and very pragmatically thought, yeah, we could have helped a lot of people with that. But John doesn't leave any room for guessing about Judas's motive. He says, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Judas was a lover of money. So much so that all through Jesus' ministry, as he watched this man heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons, walk on water, feed the hungry, preach the gospel, reveal his identity and the mysteries of the kingdom. All the while, while this is going on, while he's a witness to all of this, he was stealing from Christ, from those who were giving to Christ, just helping himself. And it probably started with some justification of, I'll just, I'll just take one, there's plenty in there. I mean, I'm working hard. I'm one of the disciples. I have to care for this money bag. I'm the treasurer. I need to get paid too. Probably started off something like that. But then it just kept going. He was a lover of money. He was a slave to his sin. Now, we all look at Judas and shake our heads. Nobody wants to be like Judas. I mean, has anyone ever met anyone who named their kid after Judas? No hands. But the truth is, the core of Judas's sin is common to all mankind. The love of money. The love of this world. The love of stuff. And this is why the Scriptures speak so much on this topic. Because it is a sneaky and deadly sin. Now, some people wrongly think that Scripture speaks of money as an inherent evil. It does not. If so, it would be hard to explain God's blessings towards people like Abraham and Job and David and many others. Money in itself is a moral neutral that can be used for good or evil. It's not about being rich or poor. The antidote to the prosperity gospel is not the poverty gospel. Now, the problem with money and everything that it can buy or provide you 
He said, when it has your heart, when it is what you live for, when it is what you rejoice in, when it is what, what you think about more than anything else, when it is what drives you, when it becomes a competitor with God, and God will have no competitors. This is why the Scripture warns of this over and over and over again. Listen to just a few passages along these lines. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. How about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6? Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Or earlier in that same sermon, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Hebrews 13.5 Keep your life free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Or one more from our beloved Apostle John, 1 John 2. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. See, this is a significant, serious danger to us all. The love of this world, the love of things, the love of money. And notice that is the connection, on the, the, the common thread for all of these passages. It's not about how much you make or you don't make. It's not about being rich or poor. It's not even necessarily about what you have or don't have. It's about what has you. It's about where your heart is, what you truly love and desire and live for, what you pursue in this world, seeking to accumulate more and more of. Is it Christ? Or is it something this world has to offer? Sadly, Judas is not as unique as we would like to think him to be. The world has always been filled with Judases. Anyone who is willing to have this world instead of Christ is a Judas. Just like Paul's traveling companion, Demas, who labored with him for the advancement of the gospel for years, but at the end of Paul's life, he had to write Timothy in his last letter to inform him that Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me. This is why Scripture repeatedly admonishes us to keep our lives free from the love of money, to be aware of it, 
and to actively keep it out of our lives. See, the reality is Judas did not. He did not keep his life free from the love of money. Rather, he, he fed that desire repeatedly through his thievery until it had finally so overtaken him that he was willing to sell the Lord of glory for a mere 30 pieces of silver. It's no wonder that he was outraged over the pouring out of 300 denarii worth of oil. He loved the value that was poured on the Lord more than the Lord himself, whether he even realized it or not. But Jesus responds. Look what Jesus says to him, verses 7 and 8. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, the way the ESV has rendered this is quite literal, but it comes across a little bit awkward. The leave her alone is, is a rebuke, but the next phrase is the answer to Judas's question. Why was this not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Jesus is not saying that there's some leftover here for a later time. He's saying this is why it's not been sold up to this point. She has kept it for this purpose until now. The NET rendered this to make it very clear. Leave her alone, period. She has kept it for the day of my burial. What Jesus is saying was that this moment had even more significance than likely even Mary realized. She had kept it for him, to be sure, to anoint him. But in God's providence... It was not only to anoint him as king, but to symbolically prepare his body for his coming death, which, unbeknownst to everyone there, is the very means by which he will be raised and seated upon his throne in order to reign. The path to glory for Christ was through the cross. Jesus' reign was to begin through his death and resurrection. And Mary's act was, was prophetically pointing to that reality, anointing him as king and preparing him for his death, which was the path to the throne. But then Jesus ends with a rebuke to Judas and to everyone there that sympathized with his fake concern. In so doing, he is reorienting their understanding of, of what is priority in this world. He says, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. His words are actually a play off of Deuteronomy 15.11 that says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. By saying what he said, Jesus was not belittling that command or the need to give to the poor among you. He's actually upholding it. But he's telling them that there is something higher. There's, there's something more important than even caring for the poor among us. And that is devotion to Christ. 
Again, this is one of those statements in this book that, that nobody else could make. If anybody else were to say this, it would just be the, the height of arrogance. I'm not always with you. Don't worry about the poor. Nobody else could say anything to that effect. But this is, this is God in the flesh. And He is simply ordering their thinking to be in line with the great commandment. What is the great commandment? Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The second is important, but it's not the first and great commandment. Devotion to Christ is our highest priority in life. And even in our carrying out of the second commandment and the, the giving to those in need, it must be done out of devotion to Christ, not divorced from it, or He regards it not. There is no priority in your life that is higher than your devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ. And nothing is even to compete with that, not even good things like charity towards others. The question is, is that what drives you? Is that what makes your heart tick? In a real sense, we are driven by this passage and the way John has framed this contrast to make a decision of our own. Which side are we on? Mary's or Judas's? Because there's really no other option. It's one of the two. And it's not about what you call yourself. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian. As we see here, even with Judas, he considered himself a, to be a disciple of Christ. It's not about what you claim. It's about where your heart actually is. You either treasure Christ in your heart above all earthly goods and gain, or you don't. Or you treasure this world and what it has to offer more than Christ. You may even like Christ, but if He's not the chief desire of your heart, then this world is. Everyone falls into one of those two buckets. Where are you? When you think about your possessions, your careers, your ambitions, your hopes, your dreams, your vacations, your finances, your investments, your homes, your lands, your cars, your hobbies, and even your own families, is that what you are living for, or is it Christ? Is it Christ? Test one, two, there we go. When you think about all of those things, is it Christ that drives you? And is your stewardship and enjoyment of all of those things governed and driven by your love for Him? Or do you just give a hat tip to Jesus while you really live for all of those other things? These are things to give serious thought to, church. It's a serious matter. The truth is, living for this world is a, is a fool's errand. 
Because if you have Christ, then you have everything. He is everything. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the great I Am. He is the creator of all creation. He upholds the universe with the word of His power. And yet He is the one who took on flesh and humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And in so doing, He has paid sin's penalty and purchased our forgiveness. And more than that, He is the one who arose from the grave and ascended to the right hand of the Father and guarantees eternal life and His own inheritance to all who believe upon Him. Could you ask for anything more? Because that's what you have in Christ. And when you pull back and you really think about those things, it's pretty stupid to throw all that away for the temporal things of this world. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? Nothing. Jesus is infinitely more worthy and worth infinitely more than anything and everything this world has to offer. Especially a bottle of perfume. No matter how much it costs. Jesus is everything. Give yourself to Christ, church. And keep your life free from the love of money. Let's pray. Father, how much we desire to be that, to be true of us, that we would keep our lives free from the love of money, the love of the things of this world, knowing that if that is our true love, then the love of the Father is not in us. God, let it not be so for anyone here May Christ be the center of all of our affections. May he be worthy and seen worthy of all worship in our eyes, in our lives. May we spend ourselves and pour ourselves out in worship to him, as we see here with Mary's example. God, thank you. Thank you that Christ has given us all. It's a gift. Thank you, Lord, that we need not to try to cling to the things of this world because we have all things in Christ. Give us the grace we need to pursue him and him alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing this song response.